Normally we jump right into our study. I, I want to pause for just a second this morning. Uh, it has been uh, a, a difficult, traumatic week for our little community here on the east side of Atlanta. And um, the, the events of Thursday morning and it just unimaginable, unspeakable act uh, in uh, Gwinnetta States in one of the mobile homes there. If you've read it, you can't make sense of it any more than I can, other than this is a broken world full of broken people, and we need Jesus, and we need His heart and mending, and that song we sang about mercy, we just need lots of that. Um, Some of us have been a part of PATH Project who ministers in that area, and so we've been in there. Some of, some of us are a part of that. Some of us love people and care about people who are ministering in that situation. And so I want to just lift all of that up. Little Diana is recovering still in the hospital. We want to pray for her this morning. A, a few hours after we got that news, uh, I got a phone call. And uh, some of you may know Josie Peters, who works in our children's ministry. She helps Check people in uh, almost every Sunday. She's part of that, part of VBS. Family was not able to get in contact with Josie's fiance Thursday and eventually contacted Josie, who went to his home and found that he had passed away. Um, just a tragic set of circumstances surrounding it. But we want to lift Josie up. She was here at the early service and uh, hugged her neck and. Uh, she's going to be, be burying him on Tuesday. So just a lot of weight uh, today and a lot of brokenness today. And uh, the place to take that is to Jesus. And so before we jump into God's word, let's just lift all of this up to him. God, our hearts are, have been heavy, um, specifically since Thursday. And the news of just an unspeakable, unimaginable tragedy. None of us can m- make sense of it. Uh, but God, we trust what we sang and that you're good somehow in all of this, not that you intended this or, or you desired this at all, but that you bring good out of our extreme brokenness. And so we call out to you to do that, that even through this, people would know you and, and trust you. Uh, we lift up little Diana and that you would heal her, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually, that your spirit would would be with her and strengthen her and give grace to her. For those who minister in that area, uh, specifically those in the PATH project, we pray for wisdom, for healing, for hope. We pray that you would give them the words to say uh, uh, to themselves as well as to the, the little boys and girls that they minister to every day. And we lift up Josie, uh, another set of circumstances we could not begin to explain but we pray for her heart and the heart of the kids that are involved. And, and for those of us who love her, uh, God, help us to be an encouragement and an extension of your grace towards her. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have uh, this problem. Uh, probably It's probably some kind of mental illness that's associated with it. I read like four or five books at the same time. Um, I get like into one about a third of the way, and then I'm starting the next one. Not because I'm studious or even all that intellectual, 
Um, I'm just, I'm always under the impression that the next book I want to read is going to be really good, and so I'm anxious to get to it. And so if there's any law in the current book, then I go ahead and jump to that book until there's a law, and then I jump to the next book. And then before I know it, there's like a stack of books beside my bed, and I'm in the middle of all of them. Combined with, uh, I don't know how you operate, but I have sort of selective OCD. Like, I don't have a lot of OCD, but where I have it, I really have it. And one of the places I have it is if I start a book, I've got to finish it. There's this compulsion within me that medication would probably help. But it's this compulsion that you started it. There may be something really, really good on page 327, and so you got to get all the way to the end. So I always have multiple books that I'm right in the middle of. The good thing about this problem is I typically end up finishing three or four books all at the same time, which if you're a reader, you know how good that feels. Like you finished it. It was great. Uh, and so I, within a week or two, I'll finish like three or four or five books that I've been reading for two years because I keep starting another book and I can't get all the way in. We, all that to say, we are finishing a book today. All right, We're finishing the book of Philippians. We've been in it for eight weeks here during the summer. If you haven't been a part of it, no worries. You're not going to be behind. It's, there's, it's like a single idea that we're going to go with here as we wrap up uh, the book of Philippians, written by a guy named Paul, if you haven't been with us. He's in jail. Life hadn't been great, but he's writing this letter about joy and how to maintain joy and how to fight off the attacks of our joy. And we get to the end, and Paul seems to be kind of torn about how to handle a specific issue. And so he couches his comments sort of on two extremes. He's wanting to say this, but he doesn't want to be misunderstood, so he says this. So we get what we've encountered before. We get this kind of split personality, Paul, at the end as he argues both sides of an argument. Now, this particular argument has to do with money. Paul uh, was very careful when he talked about money because he seems to, in a lot of his letters, be concerned that somebody might misunderstand that he's wanting more money for himself. Right? He was concerned that people might assume that the pastor or the missionary, the church planter, was taking advantage of his position for financial reasons. So Paul often says, look, I don't want your money. Don't send me your money. I don't need your money. I've got a job. I work this other job, so I don't have to ask you to mo for money because I don't want anybody to accuse me of taking your money or misusing your money or misusing my position. This is a big deal to Paul. Apparently, I know this is strange, but like 2,000 years ago, there were people who did that. There were people who used religion to get rich and to abuse people, and they lived in big fancy houses and drove nice cars and had private jets, apparently, a long time ago. That's what people used to do. They, pastors don't do that anymore, but they used to do that. And so Paul is saying, I don't want you to think I'm that guy, because I'm not that guy. So we get to the end of the book of Philippians, and this church has sent him money. They've sent him a gift. We assume it's money. It's most likely money. They've sent him money. They, they had somebody carry it to him, took up an offering, sent it to him. And so Paul's going back and forth, this sort of split personality Paul. He's going back and forth between, man, it meant so much to me that you thought of me. Like I, I, I brought so much joy to me 
that you knew I had a need and you met the need. And then immediately Paul says, but I didn't really need it. All right. Like I would have been fine. Like God was going to take care of me. But thank you. Man, I said so much about you and us and our relationship. I'm so happy. But you could have kept the money. It would have been fine. I wouldn't have said anything. And as always happens, as Paul's sort of doing this back and forth, there's something to learn about both sides. I, I mean, obviously, he's inspired by God to write this. And so both sides of his argument have a great legitimate point to them. So what we're going to do is we're going to take one side and we're going to discuss it for about 15, 20 minutes. And then we're going to take the other side. And we're going to discuss it for about 10 or 15 minutes. And, and explore both of these. Verse 10, chapter 4, that's where we're starting. I rejoice greatly. It brought so much joy to my heart, Paul said. In the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Paul's in prison. Lots of need. Things aren't good for Paul. And he says, man, it made my day. Like, it just, I was so excited. I was so thrilled when this gift showed up on my door and that it came from you. you, you were thinking about me. And he uses the phrase, you renewed your concern for me. I think this is the only place in the, in the Bible that that phrase is used. It's actually a, a gardening, like a flower, horticulture phrase. And it means to bloom again. Like a plant's been dormant all winter or it's, for whatever reason, it just hadn't bloomed in a long, long time. You walk out the door one day, and there's this new bloom on it that you can see, and it's beautiful, and you're like, yay, it's blooming again. That's what Paul's saying. I'm so thrilled that your generosity bloomed again. Like, I could see it. Like, there was something tangible. He goes on to say, it's not that you weren't concerned before. You just didn't have the opportunity to to show it. Maybe they didn't know where Paul was. Maybe they didn't have anybody to take the gift to him. For whatever reason, they didn't send anything. But Paul says, this is how I know your concern was real. You did something. Like your concern went from feeling bad for me. It went from an emotion. It went from, oh, that's really terrible. I wish somebody would do something to we're just going to do something. I don't know if we can fix the whole problem, but we're going to do something. We're going to act because there is a need. Paul seems to be saying those are two completely different things. Feeling concerned and actually acting. Concern blossoms like it, there's a bloom there when we act, when we do something, not just feel bad about it. Now, we're, we're kind of good in, in our time and culture at feeling bad and not doing. I think we talked about this before. There was a term coined several years ago. It's made up word. The word is slacktivism, right? You've heard this. We've talked about this. Slacktivism is a combination of slacker and activism. And it was coined to describe the way much of Americans respond to needs or respond to issues. They feel bad, they feel an emotion, but it doesn't translate into doing something. Instead, we sometimes convince ourselves that talking about an issue is doing something, and it's not. Wearing the t-shirt about said issue is probably not doing anything for that issue. Tweeting the hashtag of some issue 
is not doing something about that issue. We struggle with this in 2017. We are a slacktivist culture. And it's not one generation over another generation. Let's don't have that discussion. It's all of us that we've become convinced that doing nothing is actually doing something. And 2,000 years ago, Paul said, look, this is how I knew that you were concerned. You did something. It was a bloom. Like, I could see it. There was a response from you, and that matters. Here's another. This is kind of a confession. And um, first service didn't seem to... To understand this, you're going to understand better because we're, I'm more connected to you and I like you guys better. Um, I will sometimes say, with all sincerity, all sincerity of heart, I will sometimes say, if there's anything I can do to help, let me know. Have you ever said that? Has anybody ever said that to somebody else? Yeah, you're hesitant to raise your hand because you don't know where this is going. Yeah, I will sometimes say, this is confession on my part, if there's anything I can do to help, let me know which is a genuine expression of concern, is it not? Genuine expression of concern. Um, Sort of subtly I'm saying, I don't want to do something that you don't need. Like I just want to go do something and it's not the thing that you need. So when you know what you need, let me know. Guess how often people actually call me and go, hey, I thought of something that you could do. (laughs) Almost never. Almost never. I'm not saying you shouldn't say it, all right? I'm going to say it again just because it's a habit. I'm just going to say it to some of you at some point, all right? I'm not saying you shouldn't say it. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to say. What I'm saying is we have phrases like that. If there's anything I can do, let me know. But there's no bloom on the other end. Like nothing ever happens after you say that. Like you don't actually do, unless they're a really, really close, trusted friend, and you know they meant it. And that you can pick up the phone call. But most of the time, there's nothing after that. And I think Paul would say, look, you got to be careful with saying you're concerned and yet not doing something about the concern or the issue. It's one of the things I love about our new foster care family care teams, foster family care teams. we got two now. The second one, we did some training yesterday. So we've got two care teams around two foster families, and yeah, they ask them, hey, what are your preferences? What do you like to eat? What do your kids like to eat? But they just know that stuff needs to get done. Like, you need a meal. We're going to bring you a meal. Whether you ask for it or not, you're getting a meal. You need diapers. We're going to find some ways to get you diapers. Or whatever your needs are, we're going to find out what they are, and then we're just going to do it. And we're not going to say, if you need anything, let me know. We're just going to show up. And we're going to meet you. It's awesome. Foster families themselves. We have some foster families in our church. They saw a need. They had a concern. They felt an emotional tug. And they went, well, I'm going to do something. And I can't do something for all foster kids. I can do something for that one, though. I can do something. I'm going to step in and I'm going to do something. That's what Paul's talking about. Like, Paul's like, I'm so excited because your concern actually did something. Those of you who pack lunches at Fish every Thursday, you're not just concerned about poverty in our community. You're doing something. You're wrapping hot dogs and putting chips and cookies and Capri Suns in a bag, and you're driving through places, and you're making sure kids have lunch. Your concern, this emotion that you have, turned into actually doing something. I don't think Wendy's here today, which is good. I can't embarrass her if she's not here 
um, unless she listens to this. But Wendy uh, Weaver, with the tragedy on Thursday, just decided we need to care for Path and the people who are ministering in there. And she didn't, I don't think she asked anybody if she could do it. Like, she didn't ask me. She didn't come say, Pastor, like, can I do this? She just did it. And she didn't know if anybody else was going to respond or not. Wendy just knew Wendy was supposed to do something, and Wendy did something. That's what has Paul so excited right here. Paul's like, I'm so happy that you just did something, that you just responded. And I think those aren't the only ones in our church or our community that are doing something. For all of those, Paul would say, yeah, just like blooms all over the place. You're not just concerned. It's actually blooming. It's actually blossoming into something that matters. I mentioned the phrase. He said, you've been concerned. Like you've had, you've cared. It's not that you didn't care. You've cared, but you had no opportunity to show it. The word opportunity, maybe we've discussed this. The the Bible has two concepts of time. Chronos, chronological time, uh, seconds, minutes, hours, dates on a calendar. It's July 9th at 11.10, 11.15, something like that. Um, that's chronos time. right? That's the time of day. Kairos in the Bible <clears throat> means an appointed time or a season of time, like the perfect timing. When we use the phrase, the time is right, well, the time was just right for our family too. Well, the timing was right. You don't mean July 9th at 11.15. Oh, it was just right. You mean there were circumstances that came together. You were in a season of life when this made the right sense. This door opened. It was the right opportunity. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying, look, I know that you care. Nobody here doesn't care about stuff. You care about people. You care about needs. And Paul is saying an opportunity is going to come up. A kairos moment is going to come up. You're going to realize a specific need. And Paul would say that's your cue to respond. You're going to feel a nudge in your heart about something. Don't just walk away and say, well, if there's anything I can do. Don't just say, well, I really care about that. Paul would say, no, do something that tangibly matters. Here's kind of the process. My emotional concern meets a real opportunity, like a Kairos moment, like God puts a need in front of me. My emotional concern meets a real opportunity and leads to a tangible action Paul would say, all right, those are the blooms that matter right there. That's the eternal bloom. That's where you did something that mattered. It was that Brandy's sitting right here. I don't know why I didn't think about Brandy. Brandy, months ago, finds out somebody needs a kidney. Not many of us raising our hand on that one, right? Like, uh, Brandy said, okay. It's the opportunity that's in front. It's the moment that God's put in front of me. And I feel like I'm supposed to step into it, and she does. So she's down here with one kidney right now because her other kidney's keeping somebody else alive right now. Because opportunity, I'm not just going to be concerned. I'm going to do something tangible. I'm going to step into this moment and do what I can. And listen, I get it. None of us can respond to every need, right? 
You only got two kidneys. Like, the other one's not available. Like, if more people line up, like, there's... None of us are... Res- None of us are responsible for every opportunity. But all of us are responsible for that opportunity that God sets in front of us and gives us that little nudge. You felt it. You felt it whether you responded or not. You felt that I should do something or I should give or I should meet that need or I should say yes. You felt that. You're not going to feel it about every opportunity. You shouldn't feel it about every opportunity because you can't meet every opportunity. But there are going to be moments. And then the question is, are you just going to be concerned or are you going to do something? Is it going to translate into action? Verse 14, continuing on this side of Paul's argument. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. A couple of things. First of all, he says more than once. Notice how this becomes a pattern in some people. Like for the Philippians people, this was just their pattern. That when God puts a need in front of me, I just say yes. And they didn't do it once, apparently. They were continually sensitive to what God was doing. But sort of the bigger picture is there were times they were the only ones doing anything. It was just them. They weren't waiting to see if anybody else was going to take care of it when they felt like they were supposed to take care of it. They weren't waiting to see, well, can I get like 10 other people to sign up and do this with me? They weren't waiting for that. Now, maybe that would happen, but they weren't waiting on that. Paul says, look, you did it by yourself. You didn't wait for anybody else to go first. Because here's what I can promise you. If you're waiting for others to do what you're called to do, you may never accomplish what God wants you to accomplish in your life. If you're waiting for somebody else to go first and God's told you to go first, you may wait for the rest of your life and never experience what God wants for you. Maybe God put that opportunity in front of you because you're supposed to go first. You're supposed to pave the way. You're supposed to step up. And maybe other people will follow you and maybe they won't. Maybe other people will rally around you and maybe they won't. That is not the question. The question is, are you supposed to step into that opportunity? Now, there are reasons why we we don't all step into the same opportunity. And one of them, if we're just honest, one of them is just human nature. 2,000 years ago, Paul's writing. He's saying there was a need. 90% of the people did nothing. You guys did something. Everybody else, nothing. Guess what? 2,000 years, humans have not changed. They haven't changed. When there is a need, the reality is 80, 85, 90% of the people step back. I'm concerned, but I'm not going to step into it. It's human nature. If you are waiting for somebody else to do it, it may not ever get done. I mean, what, what if the Philippians had waited for somebody else to go first? Then nobody would have responded. It's just human nature that not everybody responds. But those who do, those who do, Paul, uh, Paul says, 
like what you're doing, like this is a fragrant offering to God. Like God is loving what you are doing, even if you're the only one. God is excited, thrilled by what you're doing. And you're not solving all the problems in the world. You're doing the one thing he told you to do. And God is loving seeing you do it. In verse 17, he tells them, that thing that you're doing is getting credited to your account in heaven. I don't even know all that that means. Other than that, Paul is saying, look, this matters, and God knows, and it's going to matter in eternity one day. I mean, one of the reasons Paul was thrilled at what they were doing was not because he got money. He was thrilled because he knew, like, God is seeing this, and this matters to you in eternity. Not, this is not how you get to heaven. It's not how you earn your way to heaven. But for, in some way, Paul knew that what they were doing mattered significantly to God. So when God has put that opportunity in front of you, step into it, even if you're the first one, even if you're the only one. The reality is other people may follow you if you're first. People tend to follow other people who are filled with joy and passionate about something that they're doing. Like they tend to get in line. They don't tend to get in line when we make them feel guilty for not doing it, right? Like if you do it and then get mad that nobody else is doing it, then that kind of ruins the whole process. Paul is saying, no, you did it and you went forward and it got credited to your account and God was pleased with what happened. So do it with joy. Serve with passion. Don't worry about everybody else who's not doing it. You step in and do what God's called you to do. So human nature affects this. The other thing that affects this is the fact that not everyone is called to the same opportunity. Like the opportunity God puts in front of you may not be the same opportunity that he puts in, the, in front of the person sitting at the end of the, the row that you're on. Like they may be two opportunities. They may be two great opportunities. But maybe what you're called to is not what everybody's called to. And so let that be okay. Let, let it be okay that other people are called to other things and are serving with joy. And that's getting credited to their account because they're doing what God called them to do. All right. So the other side. Let's jump to Paul's other argument. This is verse 11. He says, I rejoice. I'm, I thank you for sending the gift. I am not saying this because I am in need. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. So this is a dual message. It's great to give. It's great to step into those moments. It's good to receive. Like Sometimes you're on the other end. It's okay to be on that end as well. But whichever end you're on, Paul argues, be content that God is able to provide what you need. Paul says, look, if you hadn't sent this, I, I am confident that God still could have met my needs. I, I trust God fully, and I rejoice in this gift. But whether the gift came or not does not change my trust in God's ability to take care of me. If you're on the end that you're able to give and you're able to meet needs, maybe what God is saying to you is, look, free some of that up by giving it away. Like, you can trust God to take care of you. Like, you, you don't have to obsess over every dollar. 
God's capable of meeting our needs, and so maybe He wants you to go meet some needs with what He has blessed you with. Don't be consumed by your finances, because God's plenty capable of taking care of you. And if you're on the need end, if you're not sure the gift is coming, if if you're not sure the thing's going to get done, Paul says to you, yeah, I've been there too. Like, I, I walked that road too. And what I found was God was faithful there too. Like, God was with me and able to meet my needs even during that time. Now, he says, this is the key. The key is that I've learned to be content whichever end of the spectrum I'm on. I've, I've just learned to trust God. And by learn to be content, Paul's saying it was kind of like an initiation process that I was in. It was sort of like I was going through these levels. I was rising up in an organization from one level to the other. I didn't go from the bottom all the way to the top on this. Like, I didn't immediately learn this. It was a process in my life of of God ridding me of materialism, ridding me of anxiety about my financial situation, God digging that out of my heart. But through a period of time, I finally landed at a place where I just trusted God with everything. I just learned to be content. If I had a lot to eat or if I didn't have anything to eat, if I had plenty, if I had nothing... I have just found that God can be trusted. That's what Paul's saying to us. Wherever you are, whichever end you're on, God can be trusted where you are. God can be believed. He is more than able to take care of whatever need is in your life. He rounds it out in verse 20 by saying to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever Amen. Look, all of this, which if I have a lot, if I have a little, all of it's going to get God glory, which is what I'm going to be about. It's what my life's going to be about. He uses a, a familiar verse. Some, some of us know this verse in verse 13. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Or sometimes more familiar, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's a really familiar verse. It's on a lot of T-shirts and tattoos and things like that. Typically, when it ends up on a T-shirt, it's like a football team at the beginning of the year, and they think God wants them to win the state championship. I can do all things through Christ. That's actually not at all what he's talking about. He's not, he's not talking about helping you start your own business or whatever. Paul has just said, Paul has just said, I could have a lot or I could have nothing. I could have plenty of food. I could barely have enough food. I can do all of that only through Christ. Like the only reason I've learned this level of contentment is because of Christ. And and if I have nothing, I can walk through that faithfully. I can walk through that with my heart still pointed toward God getting glory. And you know why I can walk through it that way? Because of Christ in me. And it's almost like Paul is saying, I could never get through that if Christ weren't in me. I can never walk the difficult roads that I've been on and be content and look to His glory were it not for the work of Christ in me. So if you're going to quote it, if you're going to say, I can do all things through Christ in me, then what you got to say is, God, if I got nothing, I can do that because of you. And if I got everything, you'll keep my head screwed on tight. Like I'll be able to handle lots because you're in me, but I can walk through nothing and heartache and, and brokenness because I can do that because Christ is in me. 
And that's why, as we wrap this up, let me just say, if Christ isn't in you, like if you haven't trusted your life and yourself to Jesus, why would you try to navigate, navigate this broken life apart from him? Why would you try to walk those valleys and difficult spots without him? He is available through his grace to you. Through his death and resurrection on the cross, his forgiveness is available. His power is available. And just trust your life fully to him. I'd love to talk to you about it more later in the week or after the service. Or maybe you just know, I need to commit my life to Christ today. You could do it right now. Just turn your life over to Jesus. Let's pray. God, help us to declare rightfully that we can do all things through Christ. Meaning, we can walk through the greatest difficulties and the greatest loss. We could live through the greatest successes and anything in between because Jesus is alive in us. It's tempting to see needs, and, and the reality, God, is we're overwhelmed with needs. We see needs all the time, and we can become desensitized to that. Remind us that Paul says, concern doesn't really bloom until there's evidence. There's something tangible, something beautiful. So as ministers of Jesus in this broken world, Help us to step into opportunities, kairos moments, seasons where you say, this is your spot right now. Don't wait on anybody else. Don't wait for somebody else to go first. Don't be bothered by who's not doing whatever. You step into that moment, and it's going to get credited to your account, and it's going to be a fragrant offering to your God. He's going to get glory. I pray it in Jesus' name.